This is SciBite, episode 70, for November 8th, 2012. Hi, everyone, and welcome to SciBite, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science podcast. This is episode 80. That's unbelievable. SciBite's fresh every morning at Wednesdays over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, Heather. Hey, Heather. Hey there, Chris. Hey, Heather. Happy episode 70 to you. Yes, 70. That's awesome. So what are we talking about this week? This week, we're going to take a look at painful math. Canadian robotic rovers using a connect in science updates on spacecraft stories and curiosity viewer feedback and as always take a peek back in the history and up in the sky this week did I say 80 you did the first oh, time well I meant it's, 70 I got really exci- ha- I got excited I did. you're excited when you I thought you were gonna say happy science I was like, happy science sad math oh wouldn't so oh, I'm sorry if I said uh, if I said 80 I apologize it's fair I'm, I'm a goof I guess I'm a That's okay. All right. Well, uh, I think we should get into our first story because it sounds like it's right up my alley. So let's do the news. All right. Uh, what is? See, it's a good thing I have uh, a, a chat room there because I'm like, wait a minute, what's he talking about? So, what is the first news story this week? The first news story is math hurts. Mm. Well, some people's brains some of the time. So, the math anxiety can actually prompt the same response in the brain as when you experience physical pain. I kind of feel like that's what happened to me today. Yeah. So so they've actually had like brain scans, like uh, analyze them, uh, fMRIs. They can actually take these like real-time MRIs. And they had people, you know, with high math anxiety, kind of moderate math anxiety, no, you know, various levels of, of anxiety about it. So they're able to do it, and they give them a, a problem. Say, be like, what's the validity of 12 times 4 minus 19 equals <laughs> 29? And, you know, if you have a lot of anxiety, then the centers of your brain that are, you know, trigger pain actually trigger off. Now, they just to see it, you know, they give them short word puzzles. You know, see a series of letters and determine whether reversing the order actually spells, you know, real words. You know, so they were, you know, trying to make sure that it wasn't just the stress of trying to figure something out. It was specifically the anxiety of it. Hmm. You know, so they have, you know, 14 people. So they're like, all right, let's see how you respond to various questions of math. So it was, but it's not actually doing the math itself. Right. It's like stressing out about having to do the task, but the task yes. of it is not that stressful. Yes. So that seems like true for so many things in life. Yeah. So they're they're thinking that like, well, let's look at how this equal, how it corresponds to other events. So the anxiety of something itself actually triggers real pain receptors, and you know, it, it's kind of one of those science proves the obvious. Yeah, we're all like, you're stressing out about something. You're like, I have a headache. I am hurting. This is not good. Brain dripping out of ear, and it's so it is real pain. One of the things I've noticed 
with math type stuff is mm-hmm. if I don't think about it, like if I just if it just comes out as like a, a flow of thought of a thought mm-hmm. process, it's not really a big deal. Like if it's a time zone conversion or something like that, I can do it without really any kind of challenge if I'm not actually thinking about it. But if I actually stop and I try to think about doing the math and then try to make the calculation, it all breaks mm-hmm. down and I just get all jammed up. I just can't I can't yeah. really push through it. Yeah, it it's really breaks down like any other phobia. You have to go about treating it in a certain way. You know, make sure that, you know, if somebody has a real math anxiety, just sitting them down to do homework is not going to help. You know, you have a big sheet of math homework, that's just going to make them stressed out even more. So maybe you stop out beforehand, you write about, you know, what you're feeling or do something Hmm. to kind of settle yourself down somehow and then move over. Hmm. You know, I had a you know, near phobia of, you know, ants, oddly enough. And so, like, slowly but surely, I'm like, all right, see them way over there? I'm going to stand way over here, and I'm not going to hyperventilate. And it's okay. So it's, it's getting closer and closer to kind of how you, you know, treat yourself or how you treat it itself. I mean, this can even start as early as first grade. So it's not like it's something, you know, that's only, you know, high school or, you know, getting into higher education, it's, you know, even in elementary school, you can cause that, the pain receptors in your brain to trigger off. Wow. Well. You know, it's in this specific fold of tissue deep inside the brain. It's actually weird. It's like just above an ear or something. And so. Sounds like it's part of our monkey brain or something that uh, was put there when we were doing uh, quite different types of tasks, potentially. Because well, you think this when I was st- splitting up my M&Ms between me and my brothers, and I was anxious that they would try to figure out that um, one did not equal three, <laughs> then, then that, w- that was paid. Yeah. I was like, oh, I'm anxious, I'm anxious. But then when I was fair, I was like, oh, two and two, yeah, those are equal, I know math. Then, then you know, less stress. Interesting, huh? Well, and it kind of makes you think maybe if you can help uh, children build, uh, avoid building complexes around this kind of stuff, it would lower barriers to learning. Yeah. So if uh, even the teacher itself, is they, if they have some sort of anxiety about it, they can sort of essentially pass it on, that, that attitude, and pass it on to their students. So, if, I mean, with any of these, I mean, I was... I wonder what it is about the math of it, though. I it's mean, not necessarily math. That's so, that's the trigger. It's, but but what makes math the type of thing that triggers? So there's a lot of things, a type th- types of things that trigger it. And but what category of things are those? Because like you know, if I have to take the garbage out, I don't get I don't get anxious about that. Right? No, I mean, it's what is it? Well, they tested this for math, but they're looking to see what other kinds of things are like it. Um, hmm. What I was trying to say is, okay. you know, I like math. I like science. Yeah. History hates me uh, with a passion. Mm-hmm. Now. You know, study for math quiz, eh, hour. Study for history, three hours, still barely eke out the kind of grade I want. So it's it's that anxiety it's of I'm freaking out over this test, you're freaking out over that test, is the anxiety overall of working yourself up to get something yeah. done like That's true. I guess you're right. Yeah. It's that, yeah, anything that's kind of like that. And it could be a lot of different things. Hmm. And... And it kind of, uh, it, while it is a little obvious, I guess it helps 
maybe bring a little better understanding or, or maybe feel like I'm not so weird about it. Yeah. So That's it's, it's one of those things where you're like, oh, well, I kind of know that, but now I feel like I have a, a better excuse. Or it's like, at least I'm not like the only one. Yeah. That's good too. You know, it's like everybody really feels it, and you're not just working yourself up. You know, you smash your head. You're like, "Ow, that hurt!" <laughs> oh man, you like continue to say it hurts, and you're like, "Now I feel kind of like a baby." And then you go later, you're like, "Oh, I need a stitch. I'm not a baby anymore. I know I have validation. There is a reason a bad one. for this." Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> All right, Heather. Well, should we uh, move on? Because I think we might be giving the chat room some anxiety. Uh, okay, what do you think? Let's go. All right. Oh, guess what? We have a couple of picks for you guys this week because uh, the uh, one of the great things about Jupiter Broadcasting is we do try to keep our ad reads to a minimum. I know some shows out there sometimes take four breaks per episode to do ad reads. Well, one of the ways we keep that down to a minimum is through either contributions directly by you, our audience, or by using our affiliate systems. And tis the season. It is a great time to think of Jupiter Broadcasting when you're doing your holiday shopping, especially if you shop at Amazon or uh eBay or Newegg or ThinkGeek. Boy, I love ThinkGeek. Uh, Mint.com, if you want to just kind of keep track of your uh, finances through the holiday season, might not be a bad time to check that out. Something we've used for a few years here in the Fisher household. Audible. If you yes. use that link down there for Audible, you will get a free book. And if this is your if it's your first time, you get basically a credit is what that means. Uh, and you get to keep that book even if you cancel the subscription. A book uh, is... They, you know, you can get anything. This could be 17 hours long. I mean, they're quite quite a range. It's very cool to check it out. So you might want to check out audible.com. And then we have extension links down there for Chrome and Firefox. Then you automatically tag your shopping session at even more affiliates than we have linked down there. But say you're at Amazon. You're like, man, I wish I had a great idea for something. Well, Heather has got yeah. two, two excellent picks this week. Uh, one that comes out this week. Yes, Spider-Man. The amazing, amazing Spider-Man. Spider-Man. The new one, the one that just was out in theaters. Yes. Coming out on Friday. Yeah. And this is, seems ah. like a Blu-ray get to me. Yeah, def- I think so. Gosh, and Blu-rays, I mean, not like not that 18 bucks isn't a lot, but I remember when Blu-ray was quite a bit more, and now it's a three-disc version, and you get the digital copy too. Yeah, I really nice. like those three those three versions. Yes. Uh, so I think, I did not see this in the theater, so I think I will be buying the Blu-ray of this so I can see it in uh, high fidelity at home. Uh, yes. Now, if you are a Star Wars, the Old Republic fan, she's got a pick for you too. Yes, there is another book, Annihilation. So these, these books are all really good background story, kind of complementary to the game itself, or if you just like Star Wars in general. These are all canon you know, stories, so you can still read it, get a better idea of what's going on in this time frame. And there's hardcovers, audios, you can listen to the Star Wars universe. Oh, cool. And you know, it's all this stuff, too, is all introducing WhisperSync, so it all syncs between it, which is really cool. So as somebody who, uh, like myself, takes advantage of the audiobook option, uh, they'll do like a, some in some cases, they'll do like a $3 upgrade. So if you get the Kindle version, and then you, for like 3 bucks can upgrade to the audio version and then it syncs between the two. So you so nice. in, so when you're listening in some kind sometimes you just listen and then when you when it's more convenient or more appropriate to read, you just fire up the Kindle version, boom, right where you left off in the audiobook. It's so that awesome. That is awesome. Yes, it that is. That so, is way awesome. I love it. I love it cuz you know sometimes it's, you want to read it in different ways, so. Yeah. Uh, you guys can check that out and thank you everybody. Seriously, thank you uh, for supporting the show, supporting this network. Uh, you guys keep us going, and uh, we really appreciate it. All right, Heather. Guess what? With what? all of that done, it's time 
for the news bite. All right. What is our first story in the news bite? We've got Canadian robotic rovers. <laughs> yes. The Canadian Space Agency, they're actually really well known for their robots. They, you know, designed the arm on the space shuttle. They have the arm on the space station itself. There's the Dexter, the, you know, robot astronaut. They did that. So now they're they're kind of continuing in that fashion. So they might be the next wave of rovers that go out. This is so, pretty cool. I did not realize uh, that was Canada's uh, primary uh, contribution to this type of mission. Because, you know, you don't hear a lot about their space program, to be honest. I think maybe that's just because we're down here and we're pretty focused on what we're doing. Uh, so I, this is really cool insight. I didn't even realize this was happening. Yeah, so, you know, I read this and I'm like, well, that actually makes sense because I recognize them as being part of this. They're designing, you know, specific kinds of robots. There's uh, micro-robots micro-rovers that they're designing. So it's like two little ones operated in conjunction with the larger rover. So tether them together so the large rover can kind of drag them along and move quickly. And then these little rovers, they're thinking, so go to the moon. And there are these permanently shaded craters, which they think, and they've, you know, sort of seen water in the bottom of them. So maybe you take one of the little rovers, dump it over the side, let it, you know, climb down the mountain on a rope, Huh. in space and then it can go roll down there roll around a little bit do whatever it needs to do or maybe you you know for some reason hit uh some sort of crevice or area where the large robot can't get to so little rover jumps out does you know goes squeezes into a tiny space does its science <laughs> so i mean and in the end you could use these kind of things to alert, even when uh you know astronauts get there you could use them to work with astronauts. Yeah, sure. So probably the, probably the f- the friendliest little rovers you'll ever meet. Yeah. So they're they're actually thinking they'll be mission ready by 2020, okay. which isn't that bad, really. Okay. 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 And NASA's actually looking at a couple of them. Um, they have you know missions that they say they want to dig up soil on the moon, hmm. make hydrogen and oxygen out of it. They have a couple of overall you know mission directions that they want to go and canada is going through and saying all right well we have you know we have rover ideas that will fit that will fit to those activities Uh, to me it seems like uh you know as the technology and uh, the private industry uh sort of converge and continue to move forward Mm -hmm. um it seems like we could potentially see uh privatized attempts to mine minerals in space right i mean is that crazy or what about like asteroids and I mean, wasn't no, President Bush talking about doing that at one point during his presidency about mining an asteroid and it and or various various uh, heads of NASA and you know presidents have talked about going out and mining asteroids, going so back and get maybe this near kind of Earth stuff asteroids. could do that. It's certainly possible. Yeah, I mean, it all depends. It's that is what the almost joke of reality is, you know, around you know my office or other places. Like, how do you get man to space? Make something expensive. Make gold or, fi- yeah, or rare minerals yeah. on something, and we will get there. So you know, if we find something, there'll be a lot of analysis to say this, a spectrographic analysis, go out and say, all right, yeah, this is an interesting one. Do we have a rover? Can it get there? Is it, you know, 
We could be on Mars. Lab. We would be on Mars in 2020 if NASA announced next week that they found oil <laughs> with the <laughs> rover. We would be there. I mean, so that there's right. oil in them dar red hills. Yeah, we would go, um, and they would try to build a pipeline. <laughs> You're probably right, and and those passing by uh, rocks maybe have some precious minerals in them, or like you said, moon and hydrogen and things like that. Places where we might want to work at some point, we could send these little mm-hmm. guys to go down and do some of the uh, work for us to gather some of the resources, so that when we got there, there it was available. Yeah, so farmed. You know, <laughs> yes, armed with arms, literal yeah. little robot arms. Yeah. I don't know. You never know, right? And Canada, why not? Why not have Canada do that? Sounds awesome. That's a good contribution from that there, Canada. Yeah, and it made, you know, I read it and I was like, whoa, well, they have all this kind of stuff. They have this background of history and knowledge. So this, their robots were very different from, you know, what I've seen kind of in the NASA program. NASA program is very bigger and better and cram all the instruments you can on there. And they were very, why don't we just make something small and neat? It does its little job. Yeah. And then it's happy. Uh, so there you go, Heather. Well, good one. I'm curious to see where that leads. But what do you say? Uh, with that filed, with that news story filed, Heather, let's move on to the Two Byte News. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I'm surprised we don't scare people off at that point. I was, that was pretty good though. I felt like, uh, you know, that was. We had a jive going? Yeah, I'm just going to clip that. We'll just use that from, no, I'm kidding. I'll never do that again. <laughs> I'm sorry, no. everybody. No. Um, all right, Heather. Well, what is the first story in the two bike news? All right. The Connect. Microsoft right. Connect. That Microsoft Connect on your Xbox in science. Okay. All right. Well, this so. is a pretty sophisticated little piece of tech. So I'm curious to see what they could use it for. So researchers in Scotland have devised a way to use the Kinect as a sensing system to allow hand controls for holographic optical tweezers. Whoa. So these are laser tweezers that are basically uh, designed to manipulate really small objects, like at the cellular level. So you have three lasers, you can kind of corral something, you split it into three pieces and you kind of bring them together and corral it into the places that you want. So, you you know, have it on the edges, move it over there. Wow. But fine-tuning that kind of movement, really less than ideal. They're trying to figure out different ways to, you know, to do it. So one team said, well, why not? So they connected up a a connect to the device, and they're able to, you know, have their hands and be like, you know, um, motion so that it kind of, clicks on to a laser, kind of move it so they can move them and see how exactly it worked for hand tracking. Huh. Now, it wasn't really precise enough to be able to capture as subtle a details as they needed. Right. I would be or, my sus- I would suspect that. Yeah. Now, also, what would be really nice that they say is more like um, force feedback. So they'd see, feel the resistance as it of something as it moved around. So those would be the kind of things that would be... Hmm increase the capabilities of moving these with your with a video tracking system well and you do have to um you know kind of look at this and say well this is microsoft's rev one and i've i've read rumors to the effect that they already have higher resolution uh connects that are Mm -hmm. uh are they might uh they might release 
and you know they're gonna they're gonna just keep moving this technology more and more forward so that the controls can be more accurate now the force feedback that seems like that you know that's not really a connect solution that's more like a controller type solution or something like that yeah well some of these is like well there's proof of concept met that this kind of a thing works so maybe their team mm-hmm, waits mm-hmm. for version two mm-hmm. or maybe they wait for version two and tweak it maybe they just tweak what they have there, there's a lot of different directions they can go as of right now there's they're still gonna you know it's still useful for research for a teaching tool things of that nature just kind of they've even uh i kind of read through the in one of them that they kind of even think that they're gonna make a game of it oh so it's like make science grab the cell so more science you know what it reminds me of is you've seen various cartoons where there is uh, a remotely controlled robot or, or maybe seen this in movies where and there's somebody who's, who stands up on this platform and this holographic system comes around them and they, they, they move in, in, in the system uh-huh. and the robot kind of moves. It almost seems like the beginnings of that kind of thing. Like we're watching like the ancestors of that type of technology. Yeah. Well, I mean, think about it. You move by hand much more fluidly. I mean, you write your name yeah. with your hand or try to write it with your mouse. There's various things, you know, can you draw a circle? Can you be very precise in this? Is that how best to make it, you know, exactly what you want? Reduce the number of things in between you and the control system. You know, if you make it as direct as possible, as precise as possible, then you can make these fine details and make it very feedback and if so maybe, you made it as natural with as minimal yeah. learning to curve, like if the connect was sensitive enough, like you said, they're trying to work tweezers. And so if the connect was sensitive mm-hmm. enough where they could actually see somebody just tweezing their fingers. Yeah. Then anybody could walk in and control the machinery just by doing the action. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to sit down and learn controls or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, there, there'll, there'll be some sort of a learning curve, but, you know, a lot of these high tech devices I can go through and I can use are, you know, a couple of devices in our lab, you know, a mass spectrometer, and it'll tell me exactly what uh, chemicals are in the sample that I that my, you know, that I just got from my project. Now, do I have to know exactly what's going on in that magical box of science? <laughs> no, I, can I don't. S- I I I can't have an idea. Yeah. I know like the basic idea of what's going on. Right now, am I a chemist? Do I even pretend to be a bad chemist on Tuesdays? <laughs> Not particularly. I yeah. can pretend to be a mediocre one. But so I don't know the details, but I can still get the exact readouts I need. So that's kind of thing where there is a learning curve on how to use a correct instrument. But like you said, to make it very straightforward, then they can actually use it. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like touch interfaces. It's much more straightforward to use touch than it is to use a mouse and keyboard. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, any other thoughts on that one? No, I don't think so. Well, guess what? The uh, Cybyte uh, Computron 2000 has a alert condition flashing here. Let me punch it. Oh! Hey. It's time for a spacecraft update. That is right. Our shuttles, the space shuttles, they may be retired, but they're, a couple of them are doing stuff this week. Oh, yeah? At, yeah. Atlantis. The last shuttle ever to be in the vehicle assembly building down there in Florida yeah. was transported over to the Kennedy Space Center this weekend. So it'll, it's going to be there on permanent display. So it's, it's made its track down the road to its new home. Uh, last week, the Endeavor opened its, um, its pavilion act- officially opened at the California Science Center. Oh, yeah. And the Enterprise on, in New York 
Now, granted, a shuttle is not the same kind of thing as every all the people that are dealing with right. uh, Hurricane Sandy or all the storms. But the pavilion of the shuttle actually collapsed and it damaged the rear tail fin of yeah. the Enterprise. Yeah, that's a shame. So it'll it'll be a little while. I it was kinda weird. I heard the storm coming in and I like for a moment I thought, I was like, Oh man, how's that how's that blown up uh building gonna take that? And so they're they're leaving it in place for now because obviously there's a lot of things going on and the sheet is a protective measure. So we'll see how long it takes to get around to that or putting something up so that it is hmm. okay for all the storms that are going to roll in. Yeah, don't this they, winter. there's another one heading just there. Yeah, it just yeah. it just all right. Yeah, I think it just hit or already hit. Man. Wow. Well, uh so uh so they're going to have to repair that. Yeah, they will have they will repair it. There's already um plans for it. They're going to do it at the earliest opportunity and so they're kind of leaving everything in place to hopefully be as no more damage than it already is and they're preparing for when they can get there safely and uh, take care of the of the repairs yeah definitely all right well good news we've got a couple of stories that have leveled up yes spacex the grasshopper it is a reusable vertical takeoff rocket i like it already yes now in september they made kind of made a tiny little hop it kind of lifts it off the ground just enough and then it added it back down. And now it's made a second hop. This is a 10-story rocket. This is not just a neat, this little piddly oh. little rocket. This is 10 stories tall that goes up. It keeps going straight up. And then it lands, like, back down correctly. So in the video, it kind of looks small. So I'm kind of glad you clarified because it doesn't look 10 stories in the video. No, there is. Let's see. I don't remember. I know there was an image. It might be in one of the stories. Yeah. Well, I, I, I found a rendering of it. Yeah. But there's one image that I saw. It was like way back and you see like a couple of little people in a little spot. And it's like, okay. hey, that's an SUV and that's people. <laughs> Just so you know. I was I actually saw that video and I was surprised that it was 10 stories tall as well. Yeah. Yeah. But it's very cool that uh, I mean, so do you know how, how heavy that we're talking uh, off the top of my head. Yeah, I don't see. Wait, no. Yeah, but it seems like it. So the idea would be that it would keep going up, and then yeah. up and up and up, and it, it'd be able to hold a certain weight load. So I assume that ten-story thing was way quite a bit. Well, yeah, the whole idea is to literally make a reusable first stage. You know, if right now you have the first stage, you know, blast the rocket or the payload up towards orbit, and then it just kind of falls down, parachutes. It's no good anymore into the ocean but this would be an idea of how to get it back to get it up there and actually land it back down so you could reuse that part so they've got a couple of phases you know this is you know phase one phase two you know 45 seconds of of launch time you know go up to 240 feet up to 670 feet you know as a at a phase three they'll just keep getting higher go to 1200 feet 2500 feet 5000 Mm-hmm. You know, up to like 11,500 feet. So they're kind of just taking it in steps, seeing how far they can get, you know, 160 seconds, uh, you know, up to 11,500 feet. So like I said, they're taking it in steps and we're seeing bigger and bigger hops. But it's really impressive that they're able to make this because I've had things that try to make vertical hops, <laughs> tried, 
didn't didn't work so well. It's difficult. Yeah, it's really difficult to have that control and have all the control systems (laughs) so that it keeps a specific vertical. And the bigger it is, the much harder it is to make sure you have a strong enough control system. Oh. But it's not going to throw anything off. Mm. And for those kind of rockets, you have to make sure the rocket is... Yeah, the flame itself is very even, so you're not going to have more, just slightly more thrust on one side, so or how tip. to, right? Yeah, so it doesn't tip, or make the control system able to counteract that. That does sound tricky, right? Because so, if you had a computer system that could accommodate fast enough, maybe it could sort of recover. Well, well, yeah, it should. Yeah, but it's a lot of the how fast can the, the triggers work? So you say, oh, uh, the left side needs more you know, more, con- more control. So you send out the signal and it starts, you know, trying to compensate for that. And then between that time, what happened? Are you needing more? Did it tilt back the other way? Is it now tilting to the right and you've just, you know, put an extra thruster on the left and now you're leaning more to the right? There are a lot of things going on, so. Yep. We'll see. Yep. And it's, it's a really exciting new approach to yep. this. And it'll, I'm going to keep an eye on this one. And go SpaceX. Yes. Go SpaceX. Yay. All right. Uh, Now I see a note in here about a documentary. Yes. Ah. Yes. There is a, the, we talked about this before. Yeah. uh, Chasing Atlantis. Okay. It is, talked about it back in August. It is a documentary about a group of friends who wanted to follow the, you know, the ending of the Atlantis shuttle. So they went down, they watched it. They had all got a whole bunch of interviews of various people. And so they've already got through the filming. The whole film has been completed. Right on. And they did it completely self-funded. And now they're looking for, they've got a Indiegogo campaign, which is sort of like... Um, like Kind of like Kickstarter. Yeah, kind of like Kickstarter. So they're looking, they're actually trying to raise uh, $15,000 now for all the post-production. And now there might be a little bit more filming but all the editing and things of that nature so they're not looking to recover actually they said they're not even looking to recover the cost of the project just the last part of it the hard part well yeah the, just the the, the the post-production part which is difficult yeah. and expensive and hard to uh, avoid expensive fees on i would imagine even just getting the software and hardware to do it yeah i mean sound design color grading uh, get some assistance for research and they actually need like a musical score yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that, so there's that a lot of things to get going that they can't particularly do themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's a couple of really, you know, seen the, they've got a channel, so you can see a couple of really cool uh, videos. And actually, uh, one of them that I found amusing was uh, they saw a Dalek from, uh, like, Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. And it's a video going, going uh, we are chasing Atlantis. <laughs> To exterminate. Uh, I was a terrible rendition because I'm laughing. Atlantis, and when I find it, it will be exterminated. <laughs> <laughs> it surprised somebody. That's that's great. Yeah. Uh, okay, that's good. Yeah. Uh, so they have a channel. They also have an interview there with Will Wheaton. Yes, they do. Will Wheaton. So yep. uh, he's uh out. he's in there and he has a quick uh, I'm chasing Atlantis kind of blurb. Aww. But he's in there, and a couple of astronauts are in there, so. Well, very cool. And, uh, I, uh, you know, Indiegogo is actually picking up steam. There's a lot of people that are doing yeah. stuff on Indiegogo now, so. 
Yeah, All I've right. seen it a couple times now. I've never heard about it before uh, before this, really, though. Indeedly. All right, we have another update, don't we? We do. I teased last week that NASA had some big announcement coming okay. up. Yeah, yeah. And they did. Oh, so yeah? they're actually using data from the Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope. They will look at distant um, blazars to help measure the background light of all the stars that are shining ever. Like now and in the past wow. and ever. Wow, that's a, that's a task. Yeah. So what happens is a blazar is among the most like, energetic things in the universe. They are galaxies powered by really energetic black holes. So they let off these gamma rays. And when the gamma rays hit, so they're shining through the universe and so is starlight. So when uh, the optical and ultraviolet light from stars travels through the universe, even when they stop shining. So stars going out, star, it's out, but the light from it is still going forward. Because it's, it's like a wave. So you stop making uh, waves, but the waves are still traveling huh. down the water. Okay, yeah. So we can take this and go the gamma rays from these blazars go through and they get, when they hit a photon, they, when they collide with starlight, should I say, they transform into an electron and the, the, the anti of it, a uh, positron. So you can, the light will start being lost. So it's kind of like uh, shining light through fog. The thicker the fog, the more, you know, water droplets there are. So they're able to kind of calculate. It's like, all right, how much fog is in different places. And so we're able to estimate how many stars <laughs> have ever been in the universe. That seems like stuff we should never be able to figure out. Yeah. <laughs> we're crossing a line there. We're crossing a line of science. Now, there, wow. there actually have been in the past, like, upper limits of you know, how many stars have ever formed. And they've said, okay, this is kind of the maximum that we think. Now, this actually gives an upper and a lower limit and they're fairly close together. So it gives us a really accurate uh, guesstimation of the exact number. So, you know, measuring this kind of thing was the primary mission of, the, of this uh, telescope. So it actually is, it wasn't just like a side data in the data. It was actually, this was its purpose. Now, one of the next um, telescopes, the James Webb Telescope, Fermi is kind of looking at the shadows, you know, saying, oh, there's less light here. That means something is there. Now, the James Webb is actually going to look directly at those. So we're trying to look directly at it. So. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. So come, so come through different ways. But I read this and it was like, we have detected all the light of all the stars ever. That like, seems what? That's amazing. That's I was like, I, like, I got to read more science of this. And I did. It was really... It really is really interesting. There's a video in the show notes I have, and it helps kind of visualize it. You see a couple of gamma rays flying by, and you know little blue squiggles of of starlight, you know, going all around it. And then one hits it, and it breaks off into two pieces, and then there's just like three gamma rays co continuing on. How much do I love that NASA does this? Uh, <laughs> they put these videos out, and they're just so good. They're so yeah. good. And does it have? 
It just has this just one just, music. just groovy music, yeah. Yep, just grooving. Sometimes they actually have uh, voiceovers by professional yeah. voiceover people telling you what's going on too. Yeah, but yeah, with a lot of this stuff, it's it makes a lot more sense if you can actually see it. There's a lot of words and blazars and gamma rays and things which you can read and it makes sense, but once you see it, it really helps. You know, get that into your brain as well. I'm just really, I mean, to to think that we could even approach the ability to detect how many stars there've ever been. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, I, you never know. You just never know. It's cool stuff. Very oh, yeah. cool stuff, Heather. Well, all right. So people, if you're listening to the audio version of the show, you got to go over to the show notes and check out the video. Heather, uh, actually in the link, will it'll start just at the right time for the good stuff. So yeah, uh, you I, don't even have to worry about uh, watching the whole video if you don't want to, although you could. Yeah, totally watch the whole thing if you want, but I kind of jumped forward to the exact part where like you saw in the uh, the vid- enhanced video, but right where mm-hmm. it indicates what how that happens. Yeah. Wow. All right, Heather. Well, uh, I got a flashing incoming communications light here on the side by yeah. 2000. Oh, there we go. Well, hey. Looks like a little viewer feedback time. That is right. First, we have uh, Michael Hen- Enriquez who pointed out there is a story about a super Earth found, which is a large Earth-sized planet that could be in a habitable zone. And that's don't uh, fear no, fear not, good science peoples. That story is actually on the docket for next week. Oh, she's already monitoring it. Yes, yeah, so it's there. It's getting uh, marked up and getting notes on it. But getting scienced and researched. Yep, it's getting all science, so it'll be here on Tuesday. Cool. And the other person, uh, Justin Luna, asked about my educational experience. He's um, looking into school applications and such. Oh, okay. So just a couple minutes here. Uh, I actually graduated with a BA in physics, minoring in astrophysics. So I am not super genius. I just love this stuff and I'm, you know, I'm a science. So, but in general, if you're looking forward to getting in college and how to kind of make yourself as pretty on paper as possible for resumes or getting into schools, um, I did a lot of volunteer work in my field. I did all the volunteer work and internships I could grab, um, both in school and out of school. So in high school, I was doing a lot of volunteer work outside of school that had absolutely nothing to do with it, and that helped. It got me experience in the, you know, in astronomy, which I loved anyway, and it gave me extra stuff to put on schools. And they say, okay, yeah, she's really serious. And the physics department at my school brought me in because there was an astronomy professor who found me through that kind of stuff. So, you know, in that kind of stuff, um, and then the obvious, you know, things of saying, be careful of resumes or job things and going, because mistakes creep in really easily. Sending in uh, job interview preferences, you know, sending out a whole bunch right, at the, right before I graduated, sending like 15 all in one day. And for one of them, I wrote the wrong name, the email back, pretty much said, I'm Sarah. And that was it. Oh. And I was like, I and was then like, you realized what happened. Yeah. I realized what happened. I'm like, Oh, whoops. Ouch. I feel that's so, almost as bad as like saying it's episode 80 at the intro. Well, almost. almost. Yeah. Except you can go back and be like, Oh, ha ha ha. It's <laughs> 70. That's a lot easier. So that kind of stuff, check your resumes and really think about what you're going for. I was also looking at um, 
you know, I had the research job. Am I going for a research job or by going to work at the science museum? I wanted to find a job somewhere. Now, the kind of things that would make me look good on paper for a science museum, very different than a research, research uh, job. Mm-hmm. So kind of think about what needs to go on there, what is pertinent to what you need to have, um, practice writing essays if you need to write essays for, why you think you'd be good for our school, you know, you know, practice a couple, have somebody read them. Um, if you have to go in for an in-person interview, practice. I had, um, I went in for a whole bunch of interviews. Some of them, I was fairly certain I wasn't going to get the job. I went in anyway because I wanted to practice having, under pressure, having someone ask me a lot of questions. Hmm. And one of them, they said, actually, okay, you know, you're, you're a good person. You're not good for, uh, for our particular work. But here, opens up a desk drawer, pulls out a couple of, you know, business cards, no, talk talk to this person because I think because I think their business is actually looking something for more that you're looking for. That's really good advice. So you know, it seems like the obvious stuff. Go online if you're doing a resume for science, a fresh one, or for college. Go online. Look, what do others look like? Be like, okay, yeah, that that's kind of the thing that I'm looking for to use. I even looked up, um, you know, what are fancy keywords that people like to see. Mm. So all sorts of different things you can do. Yeah, but, I think um, that one too. So, but in general, for schools, you know, just you know, you don't have to don't overthink yourself. Don't think, oh my gosh, I was in a straight A student because I was an A B student. Um, so it's not like it's the end all be all. You know, once you're into college, nobody really cares that you got to be in history junior year all year. Yeah, because you barely squeaked by and didn't get C's in history. So nobody really cares. Right. Or when you get into the job, nobody really cares what you got. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, once you're, you know, in the real, real world, I've been told, you know, it's like once you're, you took four years to get in college, once you're four years out and you've had your job, the job is just as important as school. So oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. just think about what you're doing. Um, go forward. Uh, always try to, you know, uh, volunteer or internships or read up on what kind of stuff you're looking forward to. If you can't get the job in your field, then keep up on it. So you know, so if I had to get a job somewhere else, then I'd keep, you know, reading the science stories that I need to read, trying to keep up on what's going on, you know, use it or lose it type of thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and uh, Jehodi in the chat room, resumes really make a difference. I've had to go through a ton of resumes saying, all right, what kind of people are going to fit in this job? Or, you know, I had... Um, you know, how many teams of, of researchers are going to go out and work at this station? Okay, what people really work together, you know, cramming together pieces of paper. You know, what I've going through, you know, 300 pieces of paper of people, you kind of learn, okay, this is how the, the words you're looking for, this is kind of layout you're looking for. And it's really figuring out how to put yourself, an accurate representation of yourself, but that looks... In one page, good. Or in one essay, good. Right. Sell yourself like a product. In yes. A way. Kind of in almost in a way. You, you kind of almost productize yourself. Yes. And, you know, it's the rule. One page. Don't go two pages unless you really, mm-hmm. really have a lot of stuff. Got to be good, or though. Like, really got to yeah. be good. Yeah. Or you have, you know, you've written up stuff and it's been published. So if you have published stuff, then that could 
stretch you out. But and if it's not people- super good, you could always actually say, you know, additional experience or whatever available upon request or something like that. Yeah. You know, just yeah. that you're look you're trying, you're trying to learn. So Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There you go. There Good we go. tips. And uh, if you'd like to contact the show, you can email us at asiaabite, sci-bite at jupiterbroadcasting.com or just go over to the Jupiter Broadcasting website and click that contact link right there at the top of the page. And uh, there's an option in the drop down for SciBite. And you just choose that and it'll go to the right place. Or you go. can uh, tweet Heather. She is uh, JB underscore Mars underscore base. And I keep an eye on that. So ask me a question. And I generally try to get back on uh, straight back on Twitter or bring it back up on an episode. Yes. Awesome. All right, Heather, should we uh, take a trip to Mars? Let's. And lift off of the Atlas V with curiosity. Touchdown confirmed. We're safe on Mars. What's up? What's up? That's a wheel. All right. So uh, every week we will be just as excited, <laughs> just in case you want to know. Yeah, yeah. In case you want to know, um, we will sing crazy side two byte new songs. So as and long, we will scream hooray. As long as there is a radioactive robot on Mars with a laser, I'm going to find a way to get excited about that. Yeah, that's a pretty good. Yeah. I, I think that's a good backup plan. Yeah. yeah. All right. So what is the uh, latest uh, with Curiosity? We got a lot of updates on Curiosity this week. Okay. One, uh, the all the researchers were working on Mars time. Yeah. So Mars is 40 minutes longer. We've seen a couple of videos like, hey, we're family. our family is going on Mars time. Right. You know, the family's like pointing up at the clock. At, and they're looking at you know, their dad like, you bastard. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was like kids in the middle yeah, of summer. Yeah. So they're probably like, sweet, I'm up at midnight. Yeah, they, this I'm is sure awesome. Yeah, they had breakfast. <laughs> but they're not. They're switching to Earth time. Yep, they're switching back to Earth time. They had planned on it that just the first three months they would work on that. And then after that, they would switch back to Earth time. So they are now. Um, There's also uh, a lot of the teams, like 200 non-NASA scientists have been working full-time with them Hmm. on site. So they've all been living on site all together, Martian time. Now those teams have been prepping. They're all going to kind of disperse to their various locations in the world, work on teleconferences, web connections, that kind of thing. So it was... Basically, getting the team together, everyone was on hand, working on that Mars time, doing everything they could to have the first three months settled in. You know, all the instruments have all been checked out now. They're starting in on the science. They're moving forward on things. So now they feel comfortable enough. The teams are working together. They know each other really well. So now you kind of step back. You know, people can work on Earth time and not disrupt their lives yeah, it's easier for much. everybody, right? I mean, that's oh just, yes, yeah, yeah. There was was it? I remember the other rovers. Some people were staying on Mars time for a really long time, and it was kind of messing them up. Now there was a watchmaker in California who actually figured out a way. He had a really tweak with all the gears, but to make the the watch run on Mars time, <laughs> so it was like twenty four hours and forty minutes, and that's what it was. And it would like keep track of that time, and he was. It's hilarious. He's like, you wouldn't believe how tough it was to get a clock to run not 24 hours. Huh. And exactly every day. Yeah. Now, there's only going to be so many of them sold to the specific team that was there and, and working they, on it. Right, yeah. And they had smartphone apps, too. Well, now you do. Well, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. I, okay. Yeah, true. I guess if this was like a mission from the 70s, yeah, they would Well, have. not the 70s. <laughs> not the 70s. Okay. But... Okay. 
you know, you have a, a fashionable watch. You're like, yeah, yeah, it yeah. is 4.30 in the afternoon on Mars. If, you know, to be honest, if I was like, you know, rich and I was into watches, I would definitely want a Mars watch. Yes. That'd be a great little collector's item. Yes. I would like, I'm like, how rich am I? Have one for the the vault, have one for the wall, have one for my wrist. So there's no silly humans mucking up Mars. It's just one time. That's so nice. No time zones, no no P, PST, EST, UTC. It's just Mars time. Yep. That's, oh, man. That's His nice. one time zone, yeah, one nice. Martian time zone. But so they're all pretty happy. They're back on Earth time and mm-hmm. kind of getting into the groove of things. So we'll see how things go from here. And... Some of the analysis is starting to come in. Oh. The x-ray analysis. Looking at the Martian soil, I've been talking about this a little bit, how it was going in, you shoot uh, x-rays through the, the sample, and it actually... So you get some spectrographic analysis, you know, shoot it with the laser, and you can kind of see the compounds. But the exact layout of the crystals inside it actually makes quite a bit of difference. Um, so you can see... What's gone there? Uh, was it? I uh, come back to it. But what the soil actually looks like is like weathered basaltic soil in Hawaii. Oh wow! So, and it, it's funny because they've used that as a simulant. You know, if you want to pretend, you know, if I have a project and it, they say, "All right, you're going to use it on Martian soil," so I, they sell these like barrels of this specific mixture of you know, Hawaiian volcanic soil, things of this nature, kind of spike it to the right degree. And that's what I use to simulate. And they actually show that it is very accurate. How cool. So you've been using the right stuff all along. I know. And this is going to be the first, you know, x-ray diffraction on Mars. Now, generally these things, what's cool about this is generally they're like the size of a double wide refrigerator. Yeah. I believe on the video you just saw that was like the last bit that was on there. And on the rover, meh. Pretty small. Yeah. Like a, a neat little box. Like a size of a, maybe like a small little water cooler type, uh, like a, like keep your food in there kind of, much smaller. Yeah. Oh, uh, sorry, my brain popped back into reality. What, so you have the spectrom- spectrographic analysis, you see that, and then, but if you look through it, the diamonds and graphite look the same that way, but they're a little bit different. Okay. So you look at the structure and the properties through an x you know this x-ray diffraction uh-huh. and you can tell oh this is diamond that is graphite diamonds are slightly different than pencil lead and now you can figure out exactly which one it is uh-huh. so it's a very detailed analysis that gives very precise analysis that says all right it is presence of feldspar pyroxenes olivine um, amorphous non-crystalline materials a very so you can say, all right, this is exactly what it is here. So move on, see where it is elsewhere. But the fact that we can de- de- see these, the structures are actually really very handy. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It's so neat, too, to find out that, well, we took a pretty good guess as what we thought would be a close simulation to Mars sand. And uh turns out, you know, it is. And it also kind of reminds me that uh, a lot of these, a lot of these, uh, Rocks are made from the same stuff. Just might be uh, a different planet, but it all kind of comes from the same source material. There you go. There you go. All right. So uh, with that said, unless any other thoughts on that before we? Oh no, was there any other updates? Do we like? Uh, the, do you want to cover the methane stuff or anything? I saw you had a oh. couple of links in here. 
Uh, yeah, the methane. They've been looking for methane in the atmosphere. Yeah. There's a couple of different reasons for that. One, on Earth, that is a big trigger to say there is microbial life. There's something going on here. And in the 70s, the Viking, actually, they you know, picked up some, some dirt, they heated it up, and they got some readings. Now, it's been argued a couple, quite a few times about whether it was actual, you know, what was the reading. Okay. But did heating up the soil itself cause something else to happen? Was there bacterial organisms in the soil that, that triggered it off? But we're seeing that there is pretty much nil methane in the atmosphere. Now, the atmosphere is so thin that, you know, in the past oh. when the, there was water everywhere or, you know, there was rolling rivers as we've seen, if there was, you know, Mars slime on the bottom of their rivers, the methane that it left off would not exist now or it would be so insignificantly tiny, it wouldn't really be you know, okay. if worth any data. Okay, so it doesn't so, really take away any of the uh, sort of some of the conclusions or assumptions they're making about the previous life and water and things like that necessarily. Doesn't... Yeah, I was just looking at directly right okay. now. Okay. And through all this, you can kind of uh, guesstimate how fast mm. the Martian atmosphere is sort of boiling off itself. Hmm. So. Hmm. Wow. Very interesting. Great links in the show notes for that one this week. So uh, you guys go check that out, including they have uh, uh, the, the uh, Curiosity Update. Yes. There's no uh, no uh, Mohawk guy, but he uh, there is a very nice gentleman who tells you about rocks. Yes. If yeah, if you want to watch that. All right, Heather. <laughs> we'll step over here into the time machine because it's time we go All back. Right. Here we go. All right. Got to look back this way. Oh, 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 oh. I believe, uh, I think our destination takes us to what, about 49, 47 years ago? Uh, 47 years. November 9th, 1965 kind of themed as to we see New York and the eastern seaboard parts of it still under, you know, lack of electricity and blackout. And it was actually in 1965, November 9th, that the the biggest electricity grid at that time caused a 13-hour blackout in <laughs> Northeast America and parts of Canada. And that was when the power lines from Niagara Falls to New York were pretty much rocks rocking at their maximum capacity that they could. Hmm. And one little transmission line relay failed. So one relay failed. Now there was not enough capacity on that line, so it overloaded that line. And so now there's not enough here, so the power tried to go on other lines. And they overloaded. So think of it, you have, you know, you know your bucket and it's, you're sliding it into a big, a big pond mm -hmm. and it has rivers going out. <laughs> Now, if you block one river up, there's going to be more water going through the others. Sure, yeah. And so then, oh, now this one is overflowed. Now that one is overflowed. And it got to the fact that it pretty much went down, took down everything. Mm. Now, some uh, operators were able to shut down completely their generators, sort of pull it offline as quickly as they could to protect what they had. But, you know, 80,000 square miles, 25 million people. So, at the time, that was very large. I think it's still large right now. Um, there was some difference that I saw. You know, now there was fairly warning that there was a storm coming. At that point, it was trigger instant. There were 800,000 people in the subways of New York. Mm. So, it's very different, but kind of Intense on stuff. an historic... 
yeah. Yeah. Odd intends historically echoing here that there was a blackout 47 years ago. This week in science. Wow. So there you go. That uh, That's uh, looking back. But now it's time to look up into the sky this week. That's right. We have an exciting things coming up, especially if you are in northeastern Australia or the U.S. Oh. Now, on the solar eclipse in northeastern Australia, actually get what they call like a false start sunrise. About an hour after the sun comes up, you'll have a full uh, solar eclipse. Uh-huh. So for about two minutes, the shadow of the sun, you know, the shadow of the moon will darken the sun. It'll You'll be able to see the stars possibly for about two minutes. So you'll have, you know, the day will start and then it'll come back to not so much day. This is, on the, back. This is on the 13th? On the 13th. Okay. So on Tuesday, we're coming up on it pretty quick. Wow. Okay. So, and because we're at, yes. And because we're at solar maximum, there's going to be a really good chance that you're going to see a lot of uh, fire, tongues, and things of that nature around the mm. edge of the sun. So you'll really be able to see, you know, we're talking about all these coronal mass ejections and flares and things like that. So you'll be able to see some pretty good stuff. And there's actually going to be a three-man team capturing it live and feeding it onto the internet. So if you're not there, the in- power of the internet will bring you the science oh, of the I solar l- eclipse. I love that. Now, parts of New Zealand and Chile will be able to see um, part of it, we'll see a partial solar eclipse, but northeastern Australia, for whoever listens and is there, you get to see the full thing in person. The rest of us will look online. If you're able to see it, either online or in person, go ahead and uh, tweet it, and we will share in your joy and be jealous if you saw it in person. Yeah. But Although for those of us watching it on that live stream that you have linked there, it uh, has a countdown, so it's uh, so you can go yes. there, just check the link Heather has in the show notes, and then you just see the countdown. You don't have to remember the date if it's if you forget. Yep. Or even if you can't see, it, you'd be like, go online. Oh, okay, I've still got time. You can so, see a countdown either way. But for those of us in yeah. the U.S., we still have a little bit going on. Okay. We have a lunar eclipse on November the twenty eighth. Wow. So we've got something coming up too, so we're not. All alone. So we got, uh, we just got a little bit longer to wait, but we get a little show too. Yeah. Yeah. So we got almost three weeks on that one. I'll bring it up a little bit beforehand too, but I didn't want to leave uh, everybody else and else out and feel all lonely. But we'll have a, so we'll, we'll be able to see a noticeable darking, darkening of the northern half of the moon. It won't cover the whole thing, it'll be partial. Should be pretty visible to the naked eye that you've, that you've actually seen it dip down. The eastern seaboard, uh, the eastern United States, should I say, is going to miss out on it. So it's because the moon and law have already been set by the time it starts. Uh, the rest of the country will be able to watch part of it. The longest people who will be able to watch most of it is the West Coast and Alaska. So you get to, yep. So, nice. so you get some good uh, lunar eclipse action. So there's. I'll, uh, I'll give you my. I'll give you my report. Yep, there's links to the show notes, like we said, for the webcast and a graphic of the lunar eclipse to kind of see if you're going to be in that area to be able to see it. Mm-hmm. And we'll bring it up again later, closer to the date, so you can remember that it's happening. Very nice, very nice. All right. Yep, and in general, like we do every week, what is going to be up in the sky on Thursday? Wait, that's today. Yes. Uh, and that was this morning. That's what I get 
for pretending the shows are on Tuesdays. Well, this is the only week where they're not on a Tuesday. Normally, it would be on a Tuesday. That's true. So, but yeah. it's really okay. We got more. We got more stuff. Friday, November the 9th at dawn, the moon is going to be up. It's going to be uh, close to Venus in the southeastern skies. So it'll be, you know, so it's going to be there. And Venus is going to be to the lower left. On Saturday, November the 10th, uh, dawn, just before dawn, they're still going to be seeing uh, the moon and Venus in the southeastern sky. This time, Venus is going to be pretty close to the upper left of the moon. And to the lower left, you'll actually be able to see uh, another bright object, the star Spica. Venus will be brighter, but there's uh, images in the show in the show notes as well to kind of mm-hmm. keep all that straight as the days go by. But in general this week, uh, Venus is going to be in the east, rising about an hour before dawn. And Jupiter is going to be rising in the east to northeast just after dark. Okay. So. There you go. I yep. love that. Very nice, Heather. Well, there you go. I think that's the whole show, isn't it? That is a whole show. Well, everyone, SciBite is generally live on Tuesdays, except for this week, because we move for the election. But we'll be back uh, next Tuesday uh, over at uh, jblive.tv at 7.30 p.m. Pacific, and then available for download Wednesday mornings, like I mentioned earlier. You can contact the show, SciBite, at jupiterbroadcasting.com. We'd love to hear from you guys. And Heather, thank you for the great show. Thank you. All right, everyone. Well, thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of SideBite. We'll see you right back here next week. 